0: Composer Eric Shore is a musical chameleon who has written music for a variety of genres and venues. With a body of work that includes the musical Tokyo Confidential, vocal arrangements for Uncommon Women and Others, and processional music for the opening ceremony of the Gay Games at Yankee Stadium, most recently Eric Shore has created a captivating new album that transforms contemporary poetry into a series of unique art songs. Released by Albany Records, New York Pretending to Be Paris, features Metropolitan Opera mezzo soprano Eve Gigliotti, Boston Lyric Opera tenor Jesse Darden, and Theatre du Chatelet baritone Michael Kelly, who give voice to Shore's 13 musical settings of poems by Maury Creech, Richie Hoffman, Susan Kinsolfing, Thomas March, Aaron Smith, and Cynthia Zarin. Produced by Paul McKibbins and orchestrated by Nick Rodenwald, the album features the 19 Mercer Ensemble, who are joined by pianists Chris Frisco, Erica Switzer, and Shore himself. The result is a poignant recording full of longing and desire, and joining us for our conversation are composer Eric Shore, baritone Michael Kelly, and poets Susan Kinsolving and Aaron Smith. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you.
1: Great pleasure to be here. Hi. Good morning.
0: Eric, of course, the album's title, New York Pretending to be Paris, is named after Aaron's poem. Why did you decide on that title?
1: Well, I was originally going to call the album Songs of Remembrance and Desire, which nicely summed up the themes of the various poems. But an author friend of mine, in no uncertain terms, said that was more of a subtitle than a title. So I thought, why not use the title of one of the poems? And once I had that idea, the choice was obvious. New York pretending to be Paris. I thought it was a unique title, evocative and somewhat mysterious. It also seemed to connote a kind of sophistication and elegance, which are qualities, I think, uh, humbly speaking, the album possesses. And by the way, I decided to keep the original title, Songs of Remembrance and Desire, is a subtitle.
2: The sky is green
0: Your interest in poetry and its connection to music has been an idea that took hold very early in your life. You tend to like dramatic poems, which tell an emotional and human story. This is what enables you to set the poem to music. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's all correct. Ever since third grade, when we had an assignment to write haiku, I've been interested in poetry. And in Glee Club in junior high school, we sang musical settings by Randall Thompson of poems by Robert Frost was a collection called Frostiana, and that was, I think, my first introduction to the notion that poetry could be set to music, and perhaps result in something that was greater than the poem itself in terms of emotional impact and expression. That feeling was, I'd say, reinforced in college when the Glee Club performed the Paul Hindemith Requiem, which is based on poetry by Walt Whitman. And from then on, I started reading lots of poetry and listening to poems that had been set to music, which is something I decided I'd like to try myself. For this album, I wanted to work with contemporary poetry that told human stories, real stories, and the psychological and emotional drama inherent in those stories is, in a broad sense, what enabled me to respond to this poetry in musical
3: terms.
0: The album's liner notes quote you this way, My task as a composer was to see if I could somehow add value to this poetry. I assume by this you mean, how can you heighten the poem emotionally by making it come alive in a different medium?
1: You know, the poetry has its own inherent rhythms and rhymes and musicality, and of course its own emotional impact. My job was by taking the music that I thought was implicit in the poems and making it explicit to take the emotional impact to another level. And that is what I mean when I say adding value to the poetry.
0: Filled with beautiful and humorous images, your 13 songs flow from one another like a set of short stories that portray deeply moving characters in situations pertaining to the subject of love love in many forms. The settings are happy, angry, melancholy, and vengeful, among other emotions, each acknowledging the power of memory and desire. Tell us a bit about the aspect of memory and desire.
1: Well, the wonderful characters in these poems are often experiencing the consequences of either happy or painful memories. And sometimes those memories have to do with desire. For example, thinking back on an earlier relationship or a love affair. Some of the characters are desiring, even craving, intimacy and connection. And at the risk of stating the obvious, memory and desire are fundamental to our human experience. And the poems illustrate this dramatically.
0: How extensive was your research to find these poems? I think you mentioned that in some ways it was like looking for a needle in a haystack.
1: I actually did a very deep dive to find these poems that I would eventually turn into art songs. It took a few years, uh, on and off, to read what would turn out to be many hundreds of contemporary poems, uh, that is, poems by poets who are still very much alive. I started with poets whose work I was already familiar with, but then I quickly branched out. I spent days in Poets House, which is a poetry library in New York City. It has a huge collection, and I would randomly select volumes of poetry from the bookshelves. And then whenever I traveled, I looked for poetry bookshops. And of course, uh, when reading publications like The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, and The New Criterion, I found even more poems. Also, friends of mine who were poets would introduce me to their favorite poets, who would recommend others, and so on.
0: You also commented that one should not have to look at the text of a poem to understand what is being sung.
1: It was very important to me that as a listener, you be able to understand the words of the poems, which have now become song lyrics, without having to look at the texts, which are printed in the liner notes. I think many listeners would agree that it detracts from the listening experience if you have to do something else, in this case read, at the same time. So for this album, I was fairly insistent that the singers be crystal clear in their diction, which they obviously had no problem doing. It also meant, of course, that I had to make their job easier by setting the poetry to music in a manner that would enable them to perform it in an intelligible way. And I think the beauty of the vocal performances is that even on the very first listen, you can hear every word that's being
0: sung. (laughs) The diverse subject matter of these poems is reflected in your varied musical vocabulary and tone painting, and your musical choices reinforce the poems. You also have a keen awareness of the organic rhythm in the words, as every syllable seems to be given its proper weight. Tell us a bit about how the cadences in the sentences adapted to your musical settings.
1: I heard music in all these poems when I read them, which is why I chose them ultimately. And I responded to the inherent rhythm of the lines and the text. And then when you're setting a text, it's very important to make sure you're not musically altering the cadence of the natural spoken word. The Some of the poems actually have a very clear internal meter or time signature. It was obvious that the poem Liquid was going to be a bossa nova, and that New York pretending to be Paris was going to be a waltz. In general, I try to be very respectful of the text. Sometimes, though, the way lines of poetry are laid out on the printed page doesn't correspond to what I feel the musical lines in the song should be. And for the benefit of the listener of the song, I think the cadence and rhythm of the vocal line has to take precedence over what's on the printed page. Just to give you an example, in the poem, New York Pretending to be Paris, the first line of the song is, My mother, who doesn't like to be seen. My if you look at the poem on the page, The first line is, my mother, who doesn't like to be, and the word seen is on the next line. Now, if you are reading the poem on the page, your eye can easily go to the next line and spot the word seen. But when you're listening to the poem being sung, you don't have that luxury. Ultimately, by setting a text in a way that the listener would be used to hearing it, you make it more intelligible and, by the way, easier for the singer to sing it.
0: You mentioned that the pieces on this album are like dramatic stories or mini musicals. You've written a lot for musical theater. What's the difference between writing for a musical and writing for a song cycle such as this?
1: In my mind, there is no difference between the two. In a music theater piece, the function of the music is to illuminate the emotional state of the characters who find themselves in dramatic situations. And in the art songs on this album, we also have characters in dramatic stories and situations. My task is to create the musical language that describes and enhances the drama in the poetry. And this is the same process I go through when working in musical theater.
0: Stylistically, the music encompasses several genres, neo-romantic, jazz, chanson, and bossa nova, among many other styles. You originally scored these pieces for voice and piano, but then decided to expand the texture and utilize Nick Rodenwald to compose chamber arrangements for the album. Talk about the evolution from the two-part texture to these arrangements for small orchestra.
1: Nick hewed extremely closely to my arrangements for piano and voice. Virtually every note that is in his arrangements for the larger ensemble is also in the piano-vocal score. So it was a very natural evolution from just singer and piano to singer and chamber orchestra. And I'd say what's genius about Nick's work is that he had great respect for the original arrangements and was able to expand them in a way that seems totally natural and organic. His arrangements are filled with tones and colors that enhance not only the work painting, but the fundamental emotional message.
0: Since the characters are different in each poem, what were the challenges in getting the album to flow from beginning to end? How are the pieces linked thematically?
1: Well, all of the poems deal with the themes of memory and or desire and they tell very human stories about modern life and all sorts of relationships, people falling in love and out of love, people searching for intimacy and community, people in mourning, there are stories about parents and children, and I like to say that while each song is a small self-contained portrait, the album as a whole is like a big landscape-sized painting of human
0: emotion. As mentioned earlier, these pieces in New York pretending to be Paris are set to poems written by Maury Creech, Richie Hoffman, Susan Consalving, Thomas March, Aaron Smith, and Cynthia Zarin. We're very fortunate to have two of these wonderful contributing poets joining us for the podcast, Susan Consolving and Aaron Smith. A prolific poetry author, Susan Consolving has received critical acclaim from The New York Times, The New Yorker, Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, and other notable publications. She also happens to be a librettist. Eric, you mentioned that while reading Susan's poetry, you found yourself laughing out loud at her sense of playfulness and irony, while at the same time recognizing the emotional tension and unvarnished honesty that lie just beneath the surface of her work. Tell us a bit about Susan's poetry and working with her.
1: I think it's safe to say that I've read every one of Susan's poems that's been published. Many are infused with her trademark delightfully dark humor. And some of the stories she tells are quite unusual. But they are always believable and very impactful. They're certainly grounded in emotional reality.
0: Susan, you were surprised that Eric chose your poems for this project and took it as a validation.
4: Well, first of all, you used the expression that I was found like a needle in a haystack. And I was thrilled to be that needle. If you want a metaphor, I'll take that with an eye, a thread, and a pierce. So that was very exciting for me to work with Eric because he got the work, understood it in a deep way. Poetry, of course, is sound and sense, meaning sound and meaning. And he took that meaning into a greater realm of sound. So I was thrilled with the result. I was, yeah, validated and honored. And I really like listening to my work.
0: Aaron Smith is also with us. Author of four books published by the Pitt Poetry Series, Mr. Smith is a three-time Lambda Literary Award finalist and winner of the Frank O'Hara Award. A recipient of fellowships from the New York Foundation for the Arts and the Massachusetts Cultural Council, his work has appeared in publications such as Court Green, Plowshares, and Best American Poetry. Mr. Smith is also an associate professor in creative writing at Lesley University and has taught at West Virginia Wesleyan College. Aaron, thanks for joining us for the conversation. Hi. Tell us your thoughts on having three of your poems selected for this album. I guess I was three needles in a haystack
5: (laughs) and felt very fortunate. I was thinking if you put my work in the room with 50 other poets and said a couple of these people will be set to music, I probably would have gone to the corner and just hung out and waited to be dismissed because I wouldn't have suspected that someone would have found music in that way. I think of my poems musically working inside, but I'd never thought of someone else hearing it and setting it to music, and it did something about transforming the time. I think of my three pieces that Eric chose as happening in a moment, and the fact that he was able to take them and expand them and let them have a life where this moment got to be extended was really moving, and I was I thought they were really beautiful, and I was just really stunned to see what he was able to accomplish.
0: Eric, what was it about Aaron's poems that made you want to include them in the collection?
1: The poems of Aaron's that I chose for the album describe very intimate moments and feelings that we don't always feel so comfortable discussing or admitting to. That's the pretzels. Our desire for belonging... Our desire for connection and for intimacy he just puts it out there these poems are extremely honest and moving and evocative and one of them is actually quite provocative and sexy the last poem on the album and the poem from which the album takes its title is a tribute to Aaron's mother and one of the most poignant poems I've read in a long time
3: My mother.
0: Poetry, of course, is at the heart of New York pretending to be Paris, but as a music recording, the project is distinguished by Eric Schur's skillfully written piano parts, played by Chris Frisco, Erica Switzer, and Shore himself, along with Nick Rodenwald's arrangements, played by the 19 Mercer Ensemble, and Shore's vocal parts, featuring mezzo-soprano Eve Gigliotti, tenor Jesse Darden, and baritone Michael Kelly, who all vividly bring these art songs to life. Sought after for his riveting interpretations, Michael Kelly has performed with many of America's leading orchestras and opera companies, including the Cleveland Orchestra, Detroit Symphony, Houston Symphony, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, Chicago Opera Theater, Boston Early Music Festival, and Ars Lyrica, to name but just a few. Mr. Kelly has also collaborated with many of today's most celebrated contemporary composers, including David Del Tredici, Mohamed Farouz, Laura Kaminsky, Libby Larson, and Lowell Lieberman. And his opera, chamber, and symphonic work has been led by world-class conductors, such as Herbert Blomstedt, Louis Langtree, James Levine, Nicholas McGagan, and Leonard Slatkin, among others. We're fortunate to have Michael Kelly here with us for the conversation. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Part of this recording's appeal lies in its stylistic breadth. Tell us about your overall experience performing this music.
6: Well, you know, the thing that I look for as a singer in the repertoire that I choose to perform or record or to collaborate often has to do with the emotional content and the way it's laid out in timing. Eric is such a master at that. He's telling this story in such a way that I can find myself in my own human experiences diving into and feeling my way through as a colorist. With art song, so much of what I do is about choosing a color within my own voice to express an emotion. So it's not every composer that is good at making room for the singer to make those choices for themselves. And Eric is one of the greater practitioners of, of that style and that skill.
0: Let's get into some of the pieces. The album begins with Flowers, an enchanting song cycle based on four poems by Cynthia Zarin, which essentially describe a courtship. Eric, you commented on this cycle by writing, beauty must inevitably be accompanied by sorrow. The flower so beautiful in full blossom will ultimately die. This morning
2: I was walking upstairs from the-
1: The first poem of this cycle is actually the first poem I set for this project. I read it a while ago and always knew I wanted to work with it. It's so beautiful, and it describes the blossoming of a relationship between two lovers. As I was writing the music, I found myself wondering about how this relationship might progress beyond the end point of this particular poem, and I ended up finding three more poems by Cynthia that, when combined with the first one, could tell a more complete story about the two lovers. So the song cycle grew very organically from that one poem. What's interesting is the two middle poems are connected in that they share some nautical imagery. The second poem mentions a windward ship and the third poem describes the lover's bed as a ship and also talks about waves of sleep. I would also point out that the first and fourth poems are linked in terms of imagery. The first poem mentions flowers, and the fourth one talks about the buds of crape myrtle trees. The funny thing is, I don't think I was consciously aware of these connections when I initially selected the poems. It was only after I started to work with the poetry musically that I noticed that. And then I thought, okay, these four poems are destined to fit together in this special way. You know, the whole song cycle seems very Japanese to me, in a way. Because Japanese culture embraces the notion of ephemerality or impermanence.
2: Because you like to sleep with curtains. Drawn.
1: The almost cliched example of this is that you can appreciate the sublime beauty of the cherry blossom, but you also appreciate at the same time that such a beautiful thing cannot last very long. And this song cycle is filled with such joy, but also with inevitable sorrow.
0: Morning After Commute by Thomas March describes a first encounter that could lead to a courtship.
3: As we walk
0: out, we could be any too unknown, untired men. Tenor Jesse Darden gives a moving performance in conveying the many emotions of this poem's protagonist. Eric, tell us about how you handle this treatment.
1: This poem is ostensibly about a one-night stand it beautifully captures this mix of wonder and anxiety and regret associated with that kind of situation. But there is the possibility that the one-night stand could evolve into a more lasting connection. I think there is a lot of tension in the poem between anxiety and optimism. And that tension informs the musical choices I made. Jesse Darden, the singer, takes this tension to a whole other level by imbuing his performance with this perfect mixture of hesitancy and optimism or buoyancy.
3: And I do not try to interrupt your gaze Until we have to say goodbye And start our separate day Turn to leave one and grimy with regret.
0: Richie Hoffman's Proustian memory poem French Novel amplifies the romantic allure of a scene depicting young lovers reading books in bed and listening to piano music. Michael, you're featured on this, along with pianist Chris Frisco. Give us your impression of this song and how you approach your performance.
6: The poem takes us to such an intimate place. That's one of the things that I love the most about it is its sort of voyeuristic quality of seeing the intimate moments of two lovers together. And we go on a little journey with them of discovery and these beautiful, quiet moments and decisions that they're making. And I just love the way Eric set it, particularly with the interludes, which allow you the time to digest the words that have been expressed in these, you know, emotionally driven statements. And as you're sort of developing through that with the song as a listener you're kind of overwhelmed by the beauty of that music which is what is so wonderful about art song to begin with we have the potential to heighten all of the feelings that one could experience both as someone that's ingesting the information here the emotional content but also from the standpoint of the performer
3: my second lover.
6: I get the opportunity to go deeper into a poem because of the way it's been interpreted by the composer, the way that they've heard it, the way that they have filtered the information into the sound world. It's a wonderful experience in this particular song because of its sheer beauty. And I know I can speak for Eric when I say that he also loves this poem very intensely. And you can hear the love and the respect for it.
0: Moving on to the second poem in the collection by Thomas March, In the Apartment After You've Gone. This is a smoky saloon-style torch song treatment that Eve Gigliotti sings with great conviction. She's accompanied by Erica Switzer and the ensemble.
1: This is a poem about a character who is waiting for their lover to return. The first line just grabs you. It begins, The clocks have started keeping lazy time. The
2: clocks have started keeping
1: I just love that phrase. Time can go by so slowly when you're waiting for something or someone. I thought this was a very sexy poem, and I knew instantly, from the subject matter and the rhythm of the text, that this would be a smoky, jazzy, lazy tune. I don't think this is the style of song Eve typically sings. But she was very game and she was able to tap into both the loneliness and anxiousness of the character this is by the way a very different song stylistically speaking from anything else on the album but when i decided to embark on this project i was determined to let the content of the poems dictate the style of the music and i'm very happy to have some smoky jazz as part of the mix and at the end there's a bit of a humorous twist and i think it's very delicious the way she handled that
0: We come to a beautiful setting of a poem by Maury Creech, Elegy for a Small Town Psychic.
1: It's really a poem all about remembrance. It's an elegy, a lament for the dead. And in this case, the poem is honoring a psychic who provided a great resource, I guess you'd say, for the residents of her small town. She could guide them and she could console them with predictions of perhaps a brighter future. So this depth of a pillar of the community, if you will, even though her readings might not have always been accurate, was a profound loss for that community. And the narrator of the poem remembers her with great fondness.
3: Weekdays, you rummaged through the universe, the universe spinning around inside your crystal ball. You rummaged for model numbers, the checkout girl's lost purse
0: Some plumber's vagrant niece who wouldn't call Liquid by Aaron Smith depicts a fleeting yet memorable encounter. Featuring baritone Michael Kelly with Chris Frisco at the piano, this breezy Nova treatment works perfectly with the lines The men of Cambridge jog shirtless this morning, like it's normal to be beautiful and looked at. Aaron, tell us about this poem.
5: Well, I was thinking about the number of times that I fall in love in a beautiful Cambridge day or when I lived in Manhattan.
0: A man of Cambridge
3: jog shirtless this morning. Like it's normal to be beautiful and looked at. Unsecreted from coats, but not yet tan, their meaty chests weave among overdressed pedestrians. It's interesting
5: because these experiences, I think we all have them, are so internal and they're so fleeting in a way and then you move on and you're in love with the next person that you're passing. And it was lovely to hear that internal experience taken out of the inside and hearing Michael sing it and Eric sing this very private sort of desire moment very openly and loudly and beautifully. So I loved getting to experience the other side of what it felt like to write it i got to experience another side of what perhaps it was like to read it or to have it expressed in a way that i hadn't been able to obviously as the writer experience it
0: eric the emotion of this poem along with the natural rhythm in the text of aaron's poetry dictated the style of the music You said you instantly heard the bossa nova beat and all of its sultry associations.
1: Exactly. Between the sexiness of the story and the rhythm of the lines, it just seemed obvious this should be a bossa nova. I'm curious to know, though, since we have Aaron here, when he's writing something like this, what rhythm, if any, he hears, or if it's akin to what I heard. It's wonderful to be able to ask the poet himself this question.
5: There's always a physical feeling I have when I'm writing. It's attached to the language, and sometimes I think it's word to word. It's how I move, like I have a moment and then another word anchors me. So there was something about listening to the places where maybe the words were extended vocally, or where things were more compressed or the movement. So I was paying attention to the way that you responded to the words and I'm not sure if that makes sense I have a hard time sometimes going from that internal space to thinking about where you took it but there's something about the language and the movement that holds it and you were able to hop inside of that and open up places where perhaps I would feel more of an opening in the writing, trying to get the moment and the narrative sort of intertwined in the poem, I think was probably in revision the real task. And I think that you were able to find the moments of sort of joy in the moments where we're trying to figure out the scene at the same time, sort of the lyric moment versus the narrative. And so I think that's what really came out of it for me listening to it was thinking there's a certain amount of like wow I got across what I was saying but also a certain amount of just reward and seeing you actually get it in the way that you saw it too which was just as beautiful there aren't a lot of musical genres where you can have this internal moment of lust I just thought this was such a private experience and to get to have it, you know, hear another man sing it openly and this private experience was just really a lovely way. And I think that the art songs did so much of that on your album. There's so many moments that I don't think I would have gotten to hear in another sort of genre. So I think that's really quite striking for me as the writer and hearing the other pieces. That makes sense
1: to me. And musically, there were places in the poem where I felt that the rhythm needed to relax a bit and even go out of time. And I thought Michael, while rehearsing it and ultimately performing it, found spaces in the poem in which he could choose to dramatically enhance what was already on the page musically. And lyrically. He took it to another level, which
6: is what great singers can do.
0: Michael, how did you approach your solo within this bossa treatment?
6: Well, it's so sexy. <laughs> It is the most sexy thing a Bossa Nova, which is why it's so perfect, because it's a sexy poem. You know, this lusting after these men who are running shirtless and they're in the prime of their youth, I guess, or manhood. So I think it's just the most perfect thing for a singer to feel led into that world with such ease. And a bossa nova is easy and sexy and fun to play around with. So just to kind of think about being a gay man, I am a gay man myself. And so that was easy for me to get into as well. (laughs) So essentially, I just sort of let the music take me and let my imagination run wild. I really had to put myself there in my mind, in this circumstance, to play with these words and to see these images and to feel the impression of the quickening of the heart when you're in a situation like this where you think you're being flirted with, you don't know how far it will go, you don't know if you're going to get more out of this. (laughs) I think there's a lot of hope involved in this song that it could be more than what it is. But in the end, I think it's just a really satisfying exchange. There is sort of the trope of the gay man hoping that their straight best friend is gay because there is connection there, right? When those moments of connection are found, you hope that they can develop into something physical. Not to say that we're all, like, out there looking for straight men to turn them, but, you know, there is something to be said about two men and the way in which they interact and there's something sexy about that. build
1: on what Michael and Aaron have said, it was important to me to repeat the first lines of Aaron's poem at the end of the song. And the reason I decided to do that, and hopefully Aaron doesn't object to it, was to indicate, as Aaron said so beautifully, that you fall in love many times a day, or you can't. Those repeated lines tell us the cycle is starting again. Another sexy shirtless man is about to jog by you.
0: Then we come to Aaron Smith's second poem for the collection, After All These Years, You Know They Were Wrong About the Sadness of Men Who Love Men, which features tenor Jesse Darden and Eric Shore on piano. This poem expresses a profound desire for belonging, connection, and intimacy, which is sometimes complicated by the unavailability of those who are the objects of our affection. Aaron, tell us about this poem. Well, I
5: grew up in... A fundamentalist Christian family in West Virginia, and you know, you're very much told in that extreme religion that being gay is a sin and nothing good's ever going to come of your life if you grew up like that. And I had lived all over various places, and I was in Palm Springs, quite literally, as the poem says, at a friend's birthday. And as the poem says, I went and I lay down in the other room to nap for a minute, and then I heard the men outside saying you know where's Aaron and it was one of those moments where you're like oh everything that I was told about what my life had to be was wrong and they were wrong about the sadness of men who love men. And it's that wonderful moment for me that I s- still think about, where it's like to hear these men calling your name, looking for you, and how you've waited your whole life to be in that particular community, in that particular life, and geographically, personally, emotionally, to have a sense of belonging. And it's just that moment of being missed. So I think for me it is looking back and thinking about this is what we're told, this is the cultural narrative, but this is the reality of who I am and I think who many queer people are, you know, who have chosen families or have, you know, stepped away from narratives that no longer serve them. A lot of my work happens in moments. I'm thinking about this particular moment and just being able to stop in it and slow it down, which I think is what Eric, again, has done with the music. It's like we get to stay in it for a minute and live inside of that. And I think the music that he's set to it so beautifully captures and transforms that intimate experience into experience that I think is still intimate, but is for everyone to consume.
1: Aaron, I find that so beautifully and eloquently put. It was precisely those quiet, internal, intimate, and personal moments that appealed to me about not only your poems, but the others on the album. There is an inherent drama in that intimacy, and there is drama in exposing the intimacy. And I think both of these types of drama inspire my musical response. And going back to this particular poem, your memory of hearing your name, And how that made you feel like you were part of a community, a community that you were brought up to believe couldn't
6: exist, was such a powerful notion. You bring up a really good point, Aaron, which is being able to tell our own stories. It's one of the joys of this art form, actually, is that it's open to whoever wants to feed into that artwork, that kind of genre of storytelling through music. And it's not often that you get to tell your own stories as a gay man, unfortunately, right? The opportunities are few and far between. They're improving, they're increasing. But I relish the opportunity to tell a story like this because it feels like mine it feels close to home it feels like something that I recognize I know and that's not to say that I can't tell the universal stories of love and I can't tell all of the stories that are out there that aren't gay but whenever I get a poem like yours it's like okay great cool I feel good about this and I feel like I really have something to say about it I don't have to search at the end
1: of the poem, you say, "I want to remember this," and I felt that holding on to that memory was so important to you that I decided to repeat the words, "Remember this." So the musical line becomes, "I want to remember this, remember this."
3: To remember this. Remember
1: this. We took a bit of a ritardando there we slowed it down a bit just to give it even more emphasis and poignancy and you know whether you're gay or straight you sometimes feel very alone and when someone says i miss you it's a very important thing to hear the last line of the poem just sums it up so beautifully that's the
3: pretzels
1: you've waited your whole life for them to miss you
6: is often important to remember that You know, you're gay, you're straight, you feel all of them. You don't get cut off from feeling certain things. And I think it's even what the movie Bros, the first gay rom-com that was produced and released by a major studio. The question was, will straight people show up to see this movie? Well, there is every emotion that straight people feel are showcased in this gay movie. So I think that there's often a hesitance for straight people to enter into a gay world, thinking that they won't be able to notice or recognize themselves in it. But we've been doing it a long time. (laughs) We've been watching straight movies, listening to straight relationships, and we're able to relate to the emotional content of them because it's the human condition, not a sexual condition.
4: Having written Passing Stranger, I keep thinking how Walt Whitman would have loved hearing, boy, would he love your poem and Eric's setting and your singing. His ghost is smiling.
6: I'm constantly offering up gifts to the ghost of Walt Whitman, so thank you.
0: (laughs) We then conclude the recording with Mother, a cycle of three poems by Susan Consolving and Aaron Smith. The first two pieces are by Consolving. They explore some rather unexpected and unconventional subjects, all with Consolving's trademark dark humor. Under House Arrest features mezzo-soprano Eve Gigliotti and pianist Erica Switzer.
2: Is and unto...
0: The text is startling in its disclosures by a mother. It reads, Now that my infant is almost an adult, I will admit how one midnight I lifted her tiny body out of the crib and carried it far into a field. Susan, this mother seems to give herself permission to confess for this reckless act.
4: Yes, the poem has disturbed many a listener and reader. I'm often asked, did you really do that? Which is a question I've heard about other poems of mine. And my stock answer is, uh, people say, did that really happen? And I say, yes, it happened in my imagination and perhaps elsewhere. I think one needs to be intentionally elusive, if not instructive, about the creative experience in that it always has a seed, of course, of experience, but it is an act of imagination. and of course, this is an effort toward a literary, a poetic expression of a feeling. In the disturbance of this poem, of a mother taking an infant into the wild, into a field, and leaving the child, poem talks about fireflies, and moth wings, and owl cries, and abandonment. But the higher hope is that in that experience for the infant, there is a re-establishing of being part of the universe and being part of the natural world and not being separated from it as a human being, but integrated again in a very primal, very Eden-like recapturing. So that's what drove the poem. But I must say, I've never liked it as much as I liked it when I heard it with Eric's music. I just thought it gave those transitions kind of more credence and to some degree more time so that the listener could perhaps accept more what seemed to be a violent act as actually being a maternal act in a very archetypal
0: way. We then move to your second poem in the collection, Remodeling. Featuring baritone Michael Kelly with pianist Chris Frisco, Remodeling tells the story of a wife and mother who in learning of her husband's adultery commits a lot of wreckage, quite literally. She takes a sledgehammer, crowbar, and pickaxe to the family's home and car.
3: One afternoon, with a sledgehammer and a crowbar, my mother bashed away at that divider, bashed away until only broken boards, dirt, and uprooted plants...
0: Her child recalls years later with the line, At age ten, I knew all parents' rooms were somehow divided.
3: At age ten, I knew all parents' rooms were somehow divided. Many mothers wanted to tear every damn house apart. But no one spoke a
0: word. Susan, here again, your mother seems justified in her destruction.
4: Yes, the poem is from the point of view of a child watching this and, of course, trying to sort it out. The mother can be so effective in changing one of the rooms of the house. But that, of course, is metaphorical to the change in the relationship between the husband and wife. It's also darkly comical to imagine this. It's
3: set in the 1950s. Like many new houses in the 50s.
4: Women were, post-war, so reconfined to an ideal of baking and polishing floors and being in a starched apron, and essentially in an act of servitude to the rest of the family. So, this woman has really (laughs) taken the tools of carpentry wreckage, and she is going at her home, but she also... Has moment of warning, which is just an expression of silence, which the husband reads. It's also absurd, and it's comical in its absurdity. But it is representative of a potential reality. Michael, what was
0: your approach in performing this piece?
6: I love what Eric did with this song musically as well. It's such an extraordinary poem. This sort of tiptoey. Quality that we get from the onset of the song establishes a world of secrecy and confusion from the point of a child and danger from that perspective, which I love. He captured it so beautifully. So it immediately made me choose a color that was... That secretive and dangerous and to have these moments of explosion in my sound and to bring it way back again to have levels that were really quite large
3: and the living room.
6: Obviously, this is told from the perspective of the child looking back on that experience. But also, one wants to give the listener the impression of this memory being very burned into this person's brain. Why else tell it? It was a profound experience, probably changed them forever. And I think Susan did such a beautiful job in being descriptive about the place We really get a sense of this house and what it looked like and what it felt like. You can picture it. You can almost smell the pine saw and sort of the cleanliness of this house then being wrecked ruined and that being such an incredible metaphor for the ruining of a relationship the ruining of the innocence of probably this child experiencing this and coming to this understanding that you know adults are messy in ways that they didn't think they knew or think was possible. So I tried to bring in as many aspects of those layers of understanding of this storytelling. There's so much there already, I didn't have to work very hard, <laughs> luckily. But I tried to bring that, again, through the sound of my voice, but also through my use of diction as well, to try and be a little precious with it at times, and then being very explosive.
3: To tear every damn house upon. I
4: still remember when I first heard you sing and that sense of the violence in the poem being withheld and then being just, as you say, exploded was so exciting
0: to me, I almost fell over. We end the album with the final song in the mother cycle, Aaron Smith's third contribution to the collection, which is also the title piece, New York Pretending to be Paris. It features tenor Jesse Darden and mezzo-soprano Eve Gigliotti. Aaron, this piece is a tribute to your mother, is that right?
5: Yes. When I lived in New York City between 2001 and 2008, she came to visit me.
2: My mother, my mother.
5: Friends have asked me which bakery this is and I cannot remember. And I feel like New York is like a shoreline. You go back out. And the morning and it's completely different and I've gone back to restaurants 10 years later and they're not there so maybe it was exist in some other plane maybe it's <laughs> maybe we stumbled up on an unknown street in New York and it vanished but she did kind of what Susan was saying it's based in truth and then it becomes its own thing with imagination and with art and revising and she wanted us to take her picture and I think one of the blessings and curses of being an artist and a writer is sort of that overwhelming awareness of a moment of mortality of time passing and my mom died three years ago and to have this poem now in existence and to remember this actual moment and then to have it set to this lovely music in this arrangement this thing that was happening to me and my sister was there and i know eric reconfigured it to have her brother and sister singing to actually get to have this experience now saved in this other realm of music, not just language, of my sister and I getting to be there and have this. It's really a special thing to have happened. And you know, I'm just trying to write a poem that's honest and feels intimate for my mother and my sister and myself. And then for it to sort of be reconfigured into this other space is really an amazing experience. And I'm so honored that it moved Eric and that he wanted to title the album after it. It's just absolutely amazing, and I'm really grateful for that.
0: Eric, set as a waltz, this is the only vocal duet in the collection, and you immediately found this poem especially moving, so much so that you ran right to the piano after reading it.
1: Yes, I did run to the piano right after reading it. I knew the song would be a waltz, and I heard the melody in my head immediately. Because it's set in a French bakery, I think I started to channel French chansons, and more specifically the music of Charles Trenet, that supremely talented composer and performer of songs like La Mer, and this seemed like the perfect musical vocabulary to be using. As Aaron alluded to, while the poem is written from the perspective of the brother, I decided the musical setting would have more emotional resonance if it became a duet, for the brother and his sister. This would, I felt, enhance the drama as you listen to them bond with each other as they recall a particularly moving family situation. They actually complete each other's phrases, which serves to underline their connection. And what I also love about the structure of the poem is that it starts out in an almost joyful way, with the brother and sister remembering their mother sitting in the window of the bakery and then it takes on a much more melancholy tone at the end. My task was to figure out musically how to express and dramatize that change in tone, and what starts off as a lilting, almost seductive waltz becomes a much slower, I guess you'd say, dirge accented with tolling chimes. And trying to find the right musical vocabulary to express these shifts in emotional tone is what challenges me as a composer.
4: It's very exciting for a poet, aside from being the thrill of the needle in this haystack, but there is such a furthering of the musicality of language, as you mentioned, the diction, and of course, the silence, the spaces in between words, phrases, and transitions. I've never considered myself, and I am not, very musical in that I have very little real training. But it's almost one of those things that you know it when you hear it. And it was just amazing to me.
0: Eric Shore, Michael Kelly, Susan Consolving, and Aaron Smith. Thank you very much for joining us for the podcast to discuss New York pretending to be Paris.
5: Thanks for having us. Thank you for having me on Droid. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thank you.